when I think about images of humility, I think about the great warrior chief Crazy Horse from the Lakota people of Native American tradition in the United States. And he's known as the humble warrior. And you may recall his great victory at the Battle of Little Bighorn, where he defeated an army of 700 of General Custer. It's hard to believe that that battle took place in 1876. It's after the Civil War. The United States has been around for 100 years. And still there's a great war between the United States and the Sioux. When I look at his life and what made him great, it's always told that it was his humility that made him great. He had a vision in his youth that qualified him as a thunder dreamer. It gave him a certain power. And when he told that vision to his father, his father knew that that meant that he was a great warrior and that he had a great destiny. But part of this vision was that he could not be defeated in battle. And Black Elk narrates in his biography about this Battle of Little Bighorn. He was about 12 years old at the time, and Crazy Horse was his cousin. And he said, we could see bullets literally whizzing right through him and, and past him as he charged right into battle. And so they all believed in this boon, that there was something to this prophecy that he couldn't be killed in battle. And ultimately, Crazy Horse wasn't killed in battle. He was stabbed in the back by a bayonet when he was going for a negotiation on the reservation. But anyways, in his younger days, he was known as Light Hair because his hair was the color of his mother's, which was almost blonde. His father's name was Crazy Horse. One day in his late teens, he was in a skirmish and he killed some men. And when he went to get the scalp, as was customary among a warrior, he was injured from behind. And it was a special moment in his journey and his path to warriorhood, because he realized that it was during this moment of pride that he was attacked. This is before his great transition to warrior chief. So he never did that again. And when his father came to learn of some of his heroics, he knew that his son was, was very special. More evidence of the humility in the family comes from this story of how Crazy Horse got his name. When, when his father learned of a very special act of heroism of his son, he decided to give him his own name. So he bestowed the name of Crazy Horse onto his son, and his father, gave himself the name Waglula, which means worm. And then from then on, the father is known as Worm. But Worm came to be known as a truly great name because it was synonymous with the father of Crazy Horse. But it shows the humility in his family. He gave up his own identity and gave it to his son. Now Crazy Horse was known to keep to himself. He was mostly quiet. He never kept his head up in a high boast. He always kept his head low as he walked through the village. His primary concern was for the people, for his family, protecting the community, preserving the legacy, and being a great warrior. But he never boasted about anything. It was other people that told of his exploits. 
He just did his duty and kept to himself. He was just quiet. It's said that he would tell jokes before battle. The rest of the time when he's not in battle, he's pretty much serious. In battle, he's lighthearted. <laughs> so that his warriors felt a sense of calmness. He always had one foot in the other world, so he had a stillness about all the chaos surrounding him. And his great vision gave him that power. Everybody loved him. And Black Elk said anyone would follow him anywhere, and yet he never demanded that anyone followed him. So humility is what gave him his power. He didn't contend with anybody. He didn't argue. Uh, he didn't have strong opinions. That's the paradox of humility. We think of it culturally as meekness, which can be thought of as weakness. But as we see in the life of Crazy Horse, it is the quality of great leadership. Humility comes from French and Latin. In French, it's humilite, and that means sweetness. So the person who is humble has a certain amount of compassion or kindness to them. In Latin, it comes from this root word of humilis, which refers to something low. And it is also another name for the earth. So the earth is a great symbol of humility because it's always beneath everything. And yet the earth is 4.6 billion years old. It's here before us, during us, and after us. But in between, we talk about owning it and possessing it. This is my land, their land, fighting for land. And then as all that drama is going on, the earth is quiet underneath it all. So the earth is a great symbol of humility in most spiritual traditions. Most people don't have a good sense of their own level of humility. And a couple surveys illustrate this. One at Stanford polled graduate students and asked them to rate their performance compared to their peers. And 87% of the students said that they were above average which is impossible for all 87% to be above average because that only leaves 13%. So interestingly, those 10 to 13% actually were the group that was above average. So there's something about intelligence and as it relates to humility. So humility means having a modest view of our intellectual capacity doesn't mean putting ourselves down. doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves, but as the quote of C.S. Lewis says, it does mean that we think of ourselves less. We become more other-oriented. And we put down some of our weapons to protect our views and, and opinions and, and beliefs. Humility is like, like a muscle. It gets exercised when you put it under strain. Just like we become weak when we work out, if you lift weights, you get to a point where you can barely lift that. And in that process, you become stronger. So that is the path to growing humility, to allow yourself to be weakened or vulnerable and then to grow back from that experience. Most people don't want to do that. They hate that experience and they avoid it. But a hero welcomes it because they know that's the very thing that's going to grow their character. 
And to study this from a scientific point of view, you, you kind of have to observe it under those conditions. So the way we would study courage in psychology would be to see how someone acts in danger. Without there being an element of danger, it's difficult to know how courageous somebody is. So the same applies to humility if we're going to study it. Because it's hard to, to find these conditions and create these conditions, many researchers have just kind of stayed clear of this because it's complicated. And this idea of studying virtue in science is new anyway. We have a long history of studying things like narcissism, pride, arrogance, and, um, and been able to diagnose mental illness associated with those traits. Similarly, we have a long history of studying the pathology of disease. It's still a new movement to really see what's going on in the brain and in the biology of people who are thriving, people who are successful with different virtues. But there's a couple studies that reveal some really good insight and something more about the paradox of humility. A Duke study tried to find out if there's differences between different demographics. Do you think conservatives or liberals are more intellectually humble? What about religious versus non-religious people? There's no difference between many different demographics. All across the board, people are intellectually arrogant. So why do we have this stereotype? I think because the intellectually arrogant on the conservative side are the loudest. So naturally, we hear them, we see them more than the intellectually humble. So it then results in the stereotype that that's how they are. You know, when you, when you see that in the news, when you hear that, or when you're bombarded by a few loudmouths. <laughs> so it's, it reinforces the stereotype. At least that's, that's my theory. But there isn't a difference between these groups. So I said that it needs to be measured under strain. The strain for humility is egotism, defensiveness, and conflict. We'll find out how intellectually humble somebody is, or we'll get some sense of it when their beliefs are challenged. So one experiment that they did at Duke was they, they arranged for subjects to read an essay they had to read an essay about arguments for or against religion. And then they were asked to rate the author of that essay based on a few categories. Give an assessment of the morality of the author, the honesty of the author, the competence of the author, and the warmth of the author. And what they found was when a person had a higher level of intellectual arrogance and they read an essay that was opposing their views, they rated the author low in morality, honesty, competence, and warmth. And the opposite was true when the subjects ranked lower in intellectual arrogance, higher in intellectual humility. People who scored high in intellectual humility could better assess the morality, honesty, competence, and warmth of the author. 
And they determined that there, there's four key benefits to this, to the practice of intellectual humility. One, they find that people are less judgmental. When you're less judgmental, you don't see people's views as synonymous with their character. So what people do, say, think, doesn't determine the quality of their character in the eyes of the intellectually humble. So, the, so there's a certain flexibility when we're less judgmental. And non-judgment and mindfulness means neutral, means open-minded and curious. So when we're judgmental, those qualities of mindfulness kind of go out the window and a certain type of rigidness exists then. Secondly, we get a better evaluation of info. When we judge and when we're coming from a place of arrogance, it's hard to objectively look at the information in front of you. We tend to be closed off and we miss certain things that could be useful. Thirdly, better decision making. You've probably encountered arrogant people in the workplace in your lifetime. And when you're in those situations, it's hard to share your ideas with them. And that can be really frustrating and defeating. But you know that it's frustrating because there isn't the opportunity for the team to grow. And the real tragedy is that the leader being closed off to those ideas because they believe they have all the answers doesn't get the best decision that they could. Being intellectually humble keeps you open-minded and allows you to take in more perspectives. That's why great leaders have intellectual humility because they don't rely on the strength of their own knowledge. They're able to pull all of the collective wisdom uh, at their disposal and make wiser decisions for the team, for the company, for the country, whatever the organization may be. And fourth, better learners. So humility is the quality of studentship. Being humble means you're receptive. When we're not humble, it's less likely that a teacher will share what they know with you. And that's been uh, the legacy historically in, in ancient spiritual traditions that you had to really prove that you were open and willing. Otherwise, the teacher had no interest in sharing what they knew. And sometimes the teacher made it really difficult for the student. They had to wait a long period of time. And when I think about professors' office hours, office hours are like two days a week that the professor opens his or her doors to the students. They don't come to you. They allow you to come to them. They offer this time. And if you want to come, they'll share something. If you want to come, that's totally fine. But they're not going to come making sure you know the material or that you've learned. So it requires humility on the student's part. I remember as a musician, after college, continuing to study the guitar, I took some jazz lessons, I started to work with different jazz guitarists, and then, uh, then I wanted to learn more about classical guitar. And by that time, I had already recorded some albums, 
started touring and things like that. But when I came to my classical guitar teacher, he asked me where should we start from? And I said, from the beginning. Because I wanted to know classical guitar right from the beginning. I didn't want to get confused by what I had already learned about the guitar and jazz, which is very different, and uh, disrespect the tradition of classical music. So we started with how to hold the guitar and tune the guitar. And he believed that that's where I was at, but that was why I wanted to do it. That wasn't necessarily where I was at in terms of my understanding of music in general, but that was where I felt was appropriate to begin these lessons. And we went on from there for multiple years. And then one day he, he pulls me aside and he's like, I got a bone to pick with you. I'm like, what? He's like, I listened to a couple of your albums or I listened to a song of yours on the radio the other day and I nev you never told me that you make music and that you already have. He's like, so what do you think I am? Some kind of fool? You're trying to uh, make a joke out of this? And I was like, no. I was like, I, I thought that I should start from the beginning because I knew nothing about classical music. I may know something about music or rock and roll, but I don't know anything about the classical tradition. So that's my way of saying that what I think I know is not important now. And he ended up asking me to teach him um, how to play other kinds of music and improvise. So it was, a, it was a special exchange and I remember that it was, it was important for me to practice that. Humility is known as the first step of wisdom in uh, spiritual tradition, specifically in Hinduism. In the Bhagavad Gita it says that uh, humility is the first of 20 qualities of wisdom that Krishna teaches his student Arjuna. Humility is, is described in a fascinating way in the Bhagavad Gita, the, the Bible of the, of the Hindus. It's approached from the negative point of view. It's, it says humility is the absence of craving for respect. And I really like that. So it's, it's not something that you got to go acquire. There's something you got to get rid of to be humble, not something you got to achieve. The idea of achieving humility is counter to, counterintuitive to humility anyway. To go gain something, to build yourself up, is counterproductive in the development of humility. So the, the Gita really reveals the, the true essence of humility by saying it's something that you've got to let go of. So if we want to understand how to practice this, we have to work on letting go of that desire to be important. It's not important to be important. That doesn't mean that you're not important, but to pursue it is not important. Because it's already the essential nature of the human being or, the, or anything with life. And that's what it says in the Gita, that you're already a child of the divine, so there's no need to go acquire uh, importance. But when you do, it builds the opposite force, the egoic force. And that creates turmoil. That creates trouble, not just for yourself, but for other people in your life. So I mentioned it's measured under strain. 
The strain is egotism, defensiveness, and conflict. It's easier observed in others. It's hard to observe how humble we are. I see it sometimes in sports, but I definitely see the absence of it when there's conflict, it's not my fault. When there's success, I did it. I'm great. I'm the best. No one can beat me. I had a uh, favorite player. His name was Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. And I watched basketball since Jordan, since I was a little kid, since the Bulls in the early 80s. But in that time, only Michael Jordan has won more championships in that sport than Tim Duncan. Only by one. And I think it's interesting because for somebody to come that close to Michael Jordan, and most people don't ever think of the, don't ever think of him in these conversations. We think of lots of other players, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Magic Johnson, but rarely is Tim Duncan talked about in those conversations. Once in a while he's mentioned. The reason is because he didn't boast. He didn't talk about himself much. He didn't do a lot of commercials. He didn't say much in press conferences. He didn't brand himself. And so you might look at that and say, well, then the humility didn't really help him because these other guys are super famous and they have huge brands. But that wasn't the purpose of that work. The purpose of that work was to win championships. And he did that almost as well as Michael Jordan did. Actually, he was in six championships, won five. And Michael Jordan was in six championships, won six. So he's right there in that conversation, but not really thought of much because he wasn't a global icon. Maybe if some of these other athletes were more like Tim Duncan, they would have won 12 championships. Because when I listen to some stories about some of the other guys, like Shaq and Kobe couldn't coexist, so he had to leave. Other, other teams broke apart. The coach couldn't keep coaching them because the player was too arrogant. And Michael Jordan had to retire three times. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of drama. I love Michael Jordan, but maybe he could have won more. And maybe Kobe Bryant could have if people didn't want to leave him, if his coach didn't want to leave him. And the studies show that in corporations, that competitiveness alone does not lead to the ultimate success or the greatest success that you could achieve as an organization. When the competitiveness is coupled with intellectual humility, CEOs tend to take their organizations further in research. The reason being, they can listen to people people want to be around them. So this is the third aspect of this study is that, uh, or the, the measurement of it, is that it leads to social bonding. You see, a humble person sees themselves as part of the whole. So there's a sense of we-ness all the time, less I-ness. When there's we-ness, people are more encouraged to join forces with that. And that makes the organization more powerful. That's where the leader becomes great. In the Tao Te Ching, it says that humility is where the leader or the master gets their power. And the analogy or the symbol for this is the ocean. The ocean is lower than everything and everything flows to it. And it's low-lying nature is what gives it its power. And finally, 
Research reveals that we get better health outcomes when we practice intellectual humility. Less stress, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> and what stresses us out in life? Judgment and judgment in relationships. I'd say our relationships probably stress us out the most, not just family relationships, but all our relationships. Relationships at work, with family, with partners. And imagine, you know, how stressful it is when there is arrogance or narcissism. It's so hard to bond in those dynamics. It creates a tremendous amount of stress for the person who's intellectually arrogant and for everyone around that person. So again, to summarize, intellectual humility has two aspects. It has an intrapersonal, which means within myself, I have a modest view, uh, a realistic view of my attitudes, my talents, my intelligence. 95% of people think they're better than average drivers. <laughs> Most people don't have this. 55% of people think they're smarter than the average person. <laughs> Self-defeating statistic. And then it has an interpersonal aspect, which means we're more other-oriented as opposed to self-interested. From the ancient book, the Tao Te Ching of China, this is a good description of how the nation should operate. When a country obtains great power, it becomes like the sea, which I mentioned earlier. All streams run downward into it. The more powerful it grows, the greater the need for humility. Humility means trusting the Tao or the great way. Thus, never needing to be defensive. A great nation is like a great man or woman. When he makes a mistake, he realizes it. Having realized it, he admits it. Having admitted it, he corrects it. He considers those who point out his faults as his most benevolent teachers. He thinks of his enemy as the shadow that he himself casts. If a nation is centered in the great way, if it nourishes its own people and doesn't meddle in the affairs of others, it will be a light to all nations of the world. So how do we practice this as individuals? Here's another tip. It says that when you're in harmony with the Great Way, when you practice humility, the sky is clear and spacious, the earth is solid and full, all creatures flourish together, content with the way they are, endlessly repeating themselves and endlessly renewed. When man interferes with this, the sky becomes filthy, the earth becomes depleted, the equilibrium crumbles, and creatures become extinct. So the master views the parts of the whole with compassion because he understands the whole. His constant practice is humility. He doesn't glitter like a jewel, but lets himself be shaped by the Tao as rugged and common as stone. The ancient masters didn't try to educate the people. That's what I was talking about. The master doesn't come forward. The master stays back. But kindly taught people, ultimately, to not know. When they think they know the answers, intellectual arrogance, people are difficult to guide. 
When they know that they don't know, people can find their own way. If you want to learn how to govern, avoid being clever or rich. The simplest pattern is the clearest. Content with an ordinary life, you can show all people the way back to their own true nature. My dad used to tell me all the time growing up, the wise man knows how little he knows. Ego is this, spiritually speaking and psycho-spiritually speaking, we talk about ego as the dark force that opposes humility. So what is ego? My teacher taught me that ego is three things. That it is uh, possession, mine. This is my thing. We do this with many things. My car, my book, my wife, my kids. They're my kids. The mystical Lebanese author Khalil Gibran said, your children are not yours. They come through you, not from you. They come through you. And uh, they're the guest in your life. So it's your responsibility to treat the guest well, to take care of the guest, to show the guest uh, a place, protect the guest. House, car, things, we, we say, my, my, my. Be conscious, be mindful of the word my. My, my, my. Try to replace it, if you can, in your language, if you want to cultivate this, try to replace it with us, we, and ours. Our home, our program, our house, our family, our country, our earth, you know, our community. And try to see that and feel that sense because it will build social bonding and connection and lead to those health benefits and those social benefits. So that's part of the paradox of humility. Ego of possession. Second, ego of doership. The word ego in Sanskrit, the ancient language of the Vedas in Hinduism, is ahamkara. Aham means I am, and kara means doing or doership. So the literal meaning of ego in its ancient word is I'm doing, I'm doing this. We're not human doings, we're human beings. So when we think I did that, giving the ego food, you're nurturing and cultivating uh, egotism, doership. So why is this a problem and how does this crop up? When we achieve something, we think I did that and we tend to separate ourselves from others. We fail to see all the forces that have to come together for that event. But the intellectually humble person will try to see all the forces and gifts that made it possible for that, for that moment. Now, as a musician, you play an instrument, but you didn't make the instrument. You didn't teach yourself the instrument. You had to rely on instructors, or at the very least, the, the music of people that came before you. If you didn't have that, how could you learn? You didn't make the instrument. You didn't teach yourself. You didn't create the words. You collected the words and so on. You didn't invent melody, melodies, you organized melodies that already existed. So you build something based on all of these things that already exist. And even if you knew how to make the instrument, 
You can't make the instrument without the earth, without the trees. So the trees have to give their life to become the wood to make the sound. All these things come together and form all these chains and we're just one link in that chain, but we say, I did it. So when we say, I did it, and we ignore or neglect the great chain, then our ego grows, ego of doership. Again, we can use the language of we, at least when we're talking about what we've done, what we're a part of. We did it. Third one, identity. Aham, I am. Once you add anything after that, you're in trouble. What do we add after I am? If I asked, who are you? If someone says, who is this? How might we answer that? Our name. So there's one. I'm Todd. What does Todd do? Our occupation. I am a musician. I'm an artist. I'm a counselor. Nationality. I'm American. I'm Mexican. I'm hungry. <laughs> That's not how you say it in other languages. How do you say I'm hungry in Spanish? Tengo hambre. Tengo comes from tener, which means to have. I have hunger. I'm not hunger. <laughs> I have it. It's an experience. It's superimposed onto my existence. It's a really wise way to talk about that experience. So what else do we say? I'm Todd. I'm an artist. I'm American. I'm hungry. So with that, our feelings. I'm sad. I'm hungry. I'm depressed. I'm bipolar. I'm anxious. I'm Catholic. I'm a relative. I'm a brother. I'm a father. I'm Republican. I'm Democrat. My beliefs, I'm my beliefs. I'm rich, I'm poor. Status, I'm my talents, what I'm good at. I'm humble. That's why humble can't be something that we try to acquire. We have to work to get rid of the arrogance. When we work to acquire humility, then comes spiritual ego. I'm spiritual. I'm becoming really humble. <laughs> creates ego, creates identity. And that's the problem, because the identity is all rooted in the body, in the changing body. And when you're identified with the body, all kinds of problems come, because the body is always changing. It's little, larger, then becomes old, and then it dies. And all the while, we're identified with it, even though every seven years, we don't even have a single molecule that we had seven years prior. But we keep saying, that's me. And that doesn't make sense. But when we identified with it, it definitely weakens our sense of self. And that leads to problems with uh, self-worth and uh, the way we value our life. And because we're identified with the body, the potential to hate your life comes. If you knew that you were beyond a body, you wouldn't hate the body so much. Just like we can have a car and we can be grateful for getting from point A to point B, even if it's not a Tesla. But imagine if God or your higher power or your loved one gave you a stone, said, this is 
yours to keep to take care of for a time and then I need it back so whoever you love gives you that gift what do you do with it keep it safe protect it put it away somewhere or maybe wear it on us all the time what if you come to find out other people got a stone too <laughs> and theirs is bigger or shinier or smoother it's different and then maybe we start to judge our stone but if you really knew no this is your stone and God or or whoever you love gave it to you then you really wouldn't care about that and that's really the case we've been given something a life a body and we're the steward of it our consciousness is the steward of the body not identified with the body but in between we get confused because that's all that's all we hear that's how we're conditioned you 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 did this you did good you did bad so the cultural conditioning ends up creating identification with the body and humility is ultimately about getting released from that liberating yourself from that that's why the whole spiritual journey is a journey of freeing oneself from ego the false sense of identity with the body and achieving or experiencing through removal the removal of ignorance achieving self actualization so remember those three ego of possession ego of doership and ego of identity that's why in the bible i think it says in the old testament that god's name is i am that much i am that i am because when we add anything else onto i am it's ego and soul consciousness is taught in culture spiritual cultures all around the world as just the pure i not anything that's added onto i am i am that in the vedas it says i am that that is the the realization of truth i am that nothing more when you put something on it you've already limited the consciousness just because we build these walls and we call this our space for tonight doesn't really mean that space can be confined here if you think of um a bottle in the ocean filled with water the minute that bottle breaks the water merges with the the ocean similarly when these four walls disappear the space becomes the space that it always was if this space thinks it's the four walls then it loses itself and all the problems of ego arise so the spiritual journey is about developing tools to remove that it's not about gaining anything it's about removing that and then just resting in your true nature when we talk how much do i have to say i because when i'm saying i i'm talking about the body i'm not talking about the real i i can use it but if i have behind that the awareness that that's not the real i and when i can try to use we us seeing the bigger picture seeing the whole and tending to the whole more so than tending to the little eye tending to the big eye try to bear witness to all the forces that are involved with anything this is called wu wei 
in China, in Taoism, and in the martial arts. The, the practice of not doing. You think you're doing, but when we say, I cooked this tonight, I made this meal for you, what did I really do? I didn't grow the vegetables. When I may have cut the vegetables, but I didn't actually cut the vegetables. The, the blade cuts the vegetables. Then I put it on the oven and I say, I'm cooking it on the oven, but I'm not cooking, the fire's cooking, and so on. Then I take the food and I say, I'm eating the food, but I'm not doing anything. The hand puts it in the mouth, the teeth grind it. I'm not the teeth. Then it goes into the digestive system, and without any special effort, it, it's all happening. But meanwhile, we say we do all these things. So to watch it, and it begins with watching your breath, because all day long, the breath is going and we're not doing it. We're breathing, but we're not conscious of it. So when you start to watch that, the humility starts to manifest on its own. That's why meditation cultivates humility. Learn to be less attached. You have to be in family. You have to be in a job. You have to uh, play these roles. But can you play them and at the same time know that you're acting in a play? When you're in a play, if you don't really get angry, you're not doing a good job. You have to play the role nicely. You have to get angry when it requires it. You have to be serious when it requires it. And then you have to leave the role when your scene is over. But we're not ready to. So why not practice now instead of being yanked off with a cane later? Practice now and we'll be ready. Don't wait until we have to forcefully come off stage. And that's what happens when people, people's roles end, when we lose something, when our health changes, when we get old, when I can't do this work anymore, when I can't play the instrument anymore, when the athlete has to retire because they don't want him or her anymore. It's painful, but they're not ready because too much attachment. So let go of the attachment to the role. Play the role, enjoy the role, love the role, and then leave the role. There's always another role waiting for you. There's always another part to play. If we're too attached to the old role, we won't get to enjoy the next one, and we'll get stuck. To protect the ego is so exhausting when we can let go of the attachment to defending that uh, then we free up so much resources, then you can really experience these benefits. That's where, where a person can truly become great because they're not exhausting all their resources to defend this illusion, to def defend this and protect this phantom. Just like the space in a room is not the real space. It's just an idea that we've confined space. We build walls but it's space that we use. And it's not, it's not limited space, it's part of the great space. Same with energy or consciousness. We talk about my consciousness and your consciousness, but just as there's not a whole separate electricity for every light bulb in here, there's different bodies, but there's something that's shared behind it, and that we want to try to tune ourselves to, and less to the changing phenomena then humility can be a great tool for transforming not only our life, but the whole world. It can be an instrument to heal the social divides and the political tensions. Because if we think about how
how intellectual arrogance stops creativity and stops harmony. It's a force that disrupts harmony on the planet because people won't open themselves up to the other side. The inflexibility uh, makes things break. If we can create a sense of sweetness, like in the French description, a softness, and we become flexible, adaptable, malleable, and um, we can find a way. And it doesn't take everybody, but it needs to, uh, needs to happen for some. And if some people can do it, then uh, they become like the ocean. Streams start to flow towards that power, and that can, uh, that can have a really powerful domino effect.